0: Tonight, I want to begin a series of talks on the Satipatthana Sutta, that famous sutta that is basically the Buddha's instructions on how to practice mindfulness, which is what we're doing here. And it's a complete description of our path of practice from the very beginning of practice, the simple practices based in the body, and it goes to complete awakening. It's a step-by-step um, exposition of this practice and how it can deepen and develop. And it's so important, it's actually duplicated in two texts. It's uh, Maji, in the Majimanikaya, the middle-length discourses, it's uh, Sutta number 10, and it's repeated in the long discourses, the Nikaya, number 22, with a just a little variation. So uh, there are It's usually translated as the foundations of mindfulness, and there are four of them. And so I'll be giving four talks on this. Um, And satipatthana is usually translated as the foundations of mindfulness. Um, I've seen other translations, the establishment of mindfulness, the arousing of mindfulness, or the frames of reference. But they're all pointing to these are what we should pay attention to. These are places where we can establish our mindfulness and also deepen that mindfulness into insight. And so um, I'll be giving a a talk, uh, myself or someone else in the team will give a talk on each one. And I like to do something like this on these long retreats because it's kind of rare that we have the opportunity to give that many talks on a single theme and to really go into these teachings because they're so important. But also you're serious practitioners and, and it, I think it's helpful for you to know what the Buddha said about this practice because some of you may not have looked at these kind of texts before and know what's in here. So as I said, this sutta really describes our practice. This is where, it, it's, it's, it's an instruction manual for how to do mindfulness meditation. And particularly in our tradition, which, in case you didn't know, your tradition, our tradition is the Theravada tradition. Uh, mainly from the countries of Southeast Asia, it's where it's been established and flourished uh, Burma, Thailand, Sri Lanka, some other countries as well, but that's where uh, uh, Theravada Buddhism really has landed and established itself. And this Sutta and these teachings are central to our tradition. (laughs) Some other traditions have moved away from them, emphasize other practices, but for us this sutta is really very core. And so here we are 2,600 years later after the Buddha spoke these words, still using this as an instruction manual for our practice. So for 2,600 years people have read and, and practiced from this sutta. When our forebears in the more recent history went to Asia in the sixties and seventies, Joseph and Jack Cornfield and Sharon Salzberg, Christina Feldman, Christopher Titmus, many other people who made that journey to explore these teachings, um, this is this formed the basis of what they were taught. And they brought back the essence of these teachings to bring to the West. There was a lot in in any Buddhist country, if you go to Buddhist countries, Buddhist monasteries, you'll see a lot of teachings and practices that we don't do here, a lot of ritual offerings. It's often very ornate and elaborate. Um, you know, a lot of devotion, a lot of faith. People actually often go to the monastery to pray for lucky numbers in the lottery or to get blessings for their children and to do well in school. It be, it's become, it is a religion in many Buddhist countries. Here, uh, these, these people who went to Asia and learned these teachings just brought back the essence, the practice and left a lot of those other things behind. We've actually learned over the years that it's helpful to have some of those, the chanting and the rituals, the devotional side. But the essence of the practice is what really they felt was so important. And even in that, um, as deep and powerful as the practice is that we were taught and we teach here, it's only a subset of what is in this sutta. So again, thought it helpful for you as serious practitioners to know the breadth of, of these teachings, what's included. And what's interesting is over these years of, and it's not that long a tradition, but from the 60s and 70s, we've become what's known now as the Vipassana tradition. People tell oh yeah, I'm in the, I mean, there was no such tradition. This is a made up kind of thing. But it points to how central the teachings and the practice of Vipassana are to what we are doing here in the West, that we've created a whole tradition around it. But even in the West, and certainly if you practice in Asia, you see there's many different ways these teachings have been interpreted, many ways mindfulness and Vipassana are taught and practiced. Our lineage, again, particularly here at Spirit Rock and associated teachers and centers, is drawn a lot from the Burmese lineage, um, particularly Mahasi Sayadaw and then through to Upandita. He was the teacher for many of our teachers. And so what we teach is um, based on those teachings from those teachers and Mahasi Sayadaw caught in the 50s and 60s, um, was very revolutionary in that he really believed that lay people could practice. Up until that time, intensive practice had been considered the realm of monastics. They were the only ones who were sincere enough, had the time and interest enough to practice. But Mahasi really created these opportunities for lay people to practice and the idea of shorter intensive retreats, which is again what we've developed here in the West. And it was a very simple practice, certainly not easy, but its essence was simple, this moment-to-moment noticing of experience, this direct uh, pointing again and again to what's happening, um, uh, often taught as a noting practice where we use uh, these, these simple words to direct our attention, you know, in, out, rising, falling, stepping, left, right, touching, sensing, This is one of the hallmarks of that practice. But the noting is extra, the the noticing that was important is moment to moment, very focused um, continuity of mindfulness was the essence of that practice. And not a lot of what you might call contemplation practices where you brought in reflection or uh, some of the faith-based aspects of practice more uh, conscious investigation. It was really always emphasizing being in the moment and knowing what's happening, letting go as much as possible of story and concept. But that was just, is just one way of practicing. It turns out to be very suitable for us as Westerners and very adaptable to the form of retreat that we do, which is often shorter, you know, five days, seven days, ten days, or whatever. This is, as you know, a, a rare and long period of practice that not a lot of people can do. But this very simple, essential teaching was, was suitable for the shorter, intensive retreats. But it's not the only way that vipassana or insight meditation is practiced. Another strong influence for us is the Thai uh, forest tradition. Ajahn Chah being one of the prime teachers in that uh, area, teacher of... Jack and Ajahn Sumedho and, and many of our other teachers and Ajahn Chah taught in a very simple accessible style, emphasized a lot of ease and relaxation and a more natural way of practicing, just let nature be your teacher, um, stressed a lot of balance of mind, the natural kind of mind. And then there's Esen Goenka, an Indian man, but he um, practiced in Burma with Uba Ba Khin, and the kind of Vipassana that he developed is where you sweep the attention very systematically through the body, and that's the essence of the teaching. And, and there's not a lot of um, emphasis on the other parts of the experience, on sounds, on emotions, or even on walking meditation. There's a teacher, Ajahn whose focus of practice is moving your arm up and down like that. And that's you'll see everyone in the monastery just doing that over and over again, because in that there's there's ch- just like the breath. There's change. There's movement. There's impermanence, and there's probably dukkha after a while. I would imagine <laughs> doing that anyway. Sunlun Saidor in in Burma teaches a kind of breath meditation called the fire breath or the dragon breath. I, I, one a name like that where he does very long sits, an hour and a half, but for the first 45 minutes, you're panting like rebirthing kind of breath, a holotropic breath. <laughs> you do that for 45 minutes, altered states are almost guaranteed. Very intense <laughs> kind of practice, but th- th- this is, there's a whole tradition of that in Burma. And then Sardar Utejaniya, who we often reference, many of us here have practiced with, where there's not so much an emphasis on object, but on the awareness and the knowing of the object, chitta nupasana, the awareness of mind. And then another Burmese teacher, Pauksayada, who takes this sutta literally. He uses anapana, mindfulness of the breath, to attain deep states of concentration, and then goes through, the vipassana goes through the sutta in a very literal way. And it can take people months, if not years, to deepen into his l- level of vipassana. Um, And of course, all of those—and I'm just mentioning a handful—all of them are convinced that theirs is the best way, the fastest way, and what the Buddha actually said. No, no, no. What this is what the Buddha said. You know, it's like someone used the image of the elephant, the blind people and the elephant. You know, it's all like, no, this is the best way. I think ours is the best way, don't you? (laughs) No. I think what we've actually done is take the best of a many different methods using skillful means that have a real flexibility. We give these basic instructions, but it's all directed to this simple knowing like the Mahasi system um, teaches, but including some of these other aspects, the relaxation of Sayadaw Tejani or the Thai forest tradition, the sort of natural knowing, the trust of innate wisdom that some of these teachers emphasize. And as I said... Uh, have distilled these practices into what really can work for us as Western lay people. We're not monastics. We're not, you know, giving a lifetime to this. We're doing these short intensive periods and also wanting a practice that we can do in our daily life. So over time, these, these techniques have kind of been distilled to, basically our question is what works? What helps people develop mindfulness and deepen in insight? This is what we've um, come up with. So as I go through the sutta tonight, I'm going to be emphasizing or pointing to some of the aspects of it, the parts of it, that we don't actually teach that much and just to recognize that they're valid practices that the Buddha encouraged us to do. So they're important for us to know. But in mentioning them, I'm not going to be recommending saying you should take them up, but I think just helpful to broaden what we understand as mindfulness. Because many of us can be introduced to practice through a certain teacher or place or tradition and think that's practice, that's meditation, or even that's vipassana. And it's not, you know, it's just a subset, it's just a certain way of understanding it. And I think having a broad understanding of these teachings and all of the different practices that are possible is, is helpful for us. So the sutta starts, as many if not most suttas do, with the phrase, thus have I heard. And when you hear these words, you know that it's actually Ananda, the Buddha's disciple, remembering um, the words of the Buddha. He had an amazing memory and was the repository for many of the teachings. Thus have I heard, on one occasion the Blessed One was living in the Kuru country, where there was a town of the Kuru's named Kama Sadama. There he addressed the bhikkhus thus, Bhikkhus, Venerable Sir, they replied, the Blessed One said thus, Because this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, the realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness." And of course, because this is such a central text, there's many scholarly works passing out every meaning, every translation, every word in this, and I don't want to go to it in in that depth, but just a few of these key words in this opening um, preface to the actual teachings. The direct path was sometimes translated as Um, The one path, you know, and again, that sense of we've got the true teachings, everything else is false, but Bhikkhu Bodhi just likes direct path. It goes in one direction only. If you practice in this way, the only way this goes is to more and more freedom, more and more insight, more and more happiness. So the direct path to liberation. And then it gives us some guidelines for how to practice. It says... Bhikkhu, a bhikkhu, and here again in the notes, there are great notes that Bhikkhu Bodhi has given us that refer to other commentaries and his own study and scholarship, Uh, and he said a bhikkhu is any serious practitioner, so for the context of our practice here, we could, the the Buddha is speaking to us, we could see ourselves as all as bhikkhus here, or bhikkhunis if you want to go that far, We practice uh, for the removal of grief and suffering. It's a long way of saying dukkha. And the bhikkhu abides contemplating the body as a body, ardent, fully aware, and mindful. And these are all important words. Ardent or diligent, sometimes translated, the Pali word is atapi. And its root is in fire or passion that we should practice with a sense of really giving ourselves to the practice. Sometimes some people do this practice or hear the instructions in its simplicity and kind of this moment to moment knowing it's like, where's the passion, where's the fi- Where's the excitement? Excitement I don't know about, but passion can be here as we really give ourselves to this practice. On another retreat, I had a yogi say something like, there was such a joy and a richness in truly connecting to the moment, in being fully present for our lives, for experience. And you mightn't feel that all the time, but every now and then, right, just how precious and deep and rich that is to really know what's happening, to be fully present. This is the kind of ardency or diligence that um, we can bring to the moment. So ardent, fully aware. And I'll talk more about that. It means this depth of knowing what's happening and in the full range of our experience. And then mindful. I gave a whole talk on Sama wise or right mindfulness as a path factor. And just to remind you, Sati, the Pali word, um, is related to memory. So some sense of remembering. You could also say recollecting. It's like remembering to be present. We all say, joke, you know, it's easy to be mindful, but it's hard to remember to be mindful. It's just that, oh right, being present, all oh, right, what's happening now? That kind of sense of recollection. So it's this simple knowing what's happening. But as that deepens into samasati, it brings with us with it some balance of mind, some a kind of non interfering attention. And as it as the wisdom develops, I talked about satipanya, mindfulness wisdom or awareness wisdom. It actually supports insight. It's a wholesome factor of mind that starts to decrease the unwholesome qualities or tendencies and increase the wholesome ones. And it's there in all of the lists about practice. It's central to, or begins the um, uh, the, the seven factors of awakening. It's there in the eightfold path in the in the practice section, the bhavana section. It's part of the five spiritual faculties that steady our practice. It's central to wise effort. All of of our practice, mindfulness is central. And it's this just the simple definition, the direct knowing, but as it deepens into samasati, brings in some reflectiveness, some wisdom, some uh, skillful means as we practice. And then this section, this opening section, ends with having put away covetousness and grief for the world. And every time I hear that, I think, if I could do that, I wouldn't need to do the practice. That's basically kind of equanimity, isn't it? We'd be there already, (laughs) having put away covetousness and grief for the world. But when I thought about that, I thought, That's what we did with that cell phone ceremony, right? You just put away the cell phone and all of that, you know, the the wanting and the worry that the the phones can bring. So we've already done that to a large extent. But basically, basically it means we're committed to the practice. We're here. We're fully here. And yes, of course the mind goes to the world outside and our lives and families, but we try not to deepen the entanglement there. We really want to keep landing back here. We're not um, filling our minds with worldly things, because it's pretty simple here, right? It's, it's a lot of renunciation. So that's the, the prelude to the practice, and then it starts on a section on each of the four foundations of body, of feeling tone or vedana, of mental states, and then of dhammas, which is a complicated set of teachings that I'll do in another talk. And what's interesting is it said that each one is sufficient for awakening. You could take any one of these foundations, and sometimes the Buddha will say even a subset of the foundation you could take, and that would be enough, that would lead to full awakening. But together, they form this amazingly rich and varied map for practice. It's really quite incredible as a a path of practice. And it starts with contemplation of the body. Really makes sense to start with this experience of the body as a place we can kind of rest and establish our attention. But I think it's always important to remember, I find it helpful to remember that the Buddha was a historical figure. He was a real person who lived, as far as we can know, 2,600 years ago. And he taught in the context of his time and his culture, a very different culture to what we're living in basically an agrarian society with a caste system, with a whole set of beliefs that were in place. Um, It was a Brahmanical society, there was a priestly caste that um, had the kind of control over spiritual life and um, practitioners or people had to come to them to get purification and blessings and things. So practice, and there were a lot of ascetic practices at the time. And there was obviously, people had a way of relating to the body. It wasn't that different to how we relate now. They were obsessed with the body in very much the same ways that, that we are. There were There's a lot of references in the sutta to how one dressed and to have the finest clothes and perfumes and adornments. Um, certainly for the women, but even the men, there was a whole clan of especially young men called the lichavis. And it was said that they would um, adorn themselves and some would be in blue and they would wear blue clothes with blue um, jewelry and blue makeup and some would be in white with white makeup and white clothes and white uh, jewelry or red or whatever. So there was a, a lot of um, thought and obsession really for those that could afford it around how one looked and, and smelled the perfumes, etc. And there was also a strong aesthetic bent Again, if you know the life of the Buddha, he left his home into the homeless life and did these many years of extremely ascetic practices because that was considered a, um, a way, a very valued way to practice really sincere asceticism of, of torturing the body in all kinds of ways through starving and living outdoors and dressing in rags. So those two um, were very much part of how people related to the body. And so we have those. We certainly have the obsession with the body, right? The the identification and the obsession with the body. And there's even some threads of the asceticism it's still here. Some people can just take it up if they have a kind of distorted view of the body, or certain faiths will still do that, you know, with an emphasis on fasting. Certainly in the Christian tradition for monks and nuns, a, a real rigor and asceticism in how they live their lives, vows of poverty and chastity, very simple lifestyle. So that thread is still there. I think what is different and that we really have to be aware of as we do these practices is this tendency towards self-hatred that I spoke about the other night, and a a disconnect from the body. I don't think those were there in the time of the Buddha. Um, So we need to be um, aware of that and bring in kindness and compassion as we do these practices. Um, There's a story, it's a true story, of one of the first times that the Dalai Lama visited IMS, he's come a couple of times, actually. Um, you know, many, many years ago, before he was the world-famous kind of spiritual rock star that he hears these days, with, you know, thousands of people showing up, there was just a small group of people here able to ask him questions. And so questions about all kinds of things, people's practice and understanding. But one young man um, asked, asked him a question about self-judgment just basically said, how do I practice with that? These feelings of self-hatred and unworthiness and really a sense of despair at times. And the, the Dalai Lama was very intense as he listened to this. And then there was a long back and forth with his translator. And, you know, in Tibetan, so people didn't know what they were saying. And finally he turned back to this young man. And he, you know, what they figured out was he had no idea what this man was talking about. He was trying to understand the translator, and he trying to figure out what are they talking about, self-hatred? And finally his answer was, no, don't believe that, you're wrong. It was very firm. You know, precious human birth, he talked about, really appreciate yourself. But he had no idea what someone was asking about when he talked about self-hatred. So we bring this twist to our practice often, not always, of course, but often. So again, need to be aware of that and and practice in a way that brings kindness and compassion and acceptance to the body. But back then, the Buddha's emphasis on mindfulness of the body, turning the attention to this inner and deep exploration, was radical. Wasn't t- done at the time. The main practices were ascetic- uh, no, uh, concentration practices, as meditation practices, samatha practices, stilling of the mind, deep deep states of concentration, and perhaps mantra and prayer. But not mindfulness it was radical to say, look at your own experience, and it's radical today. You know, many of us live a little disconnected from the body. Our culture doesn't emphasize this kind of presence. We certainly know about training the body to to, for sports or for dance or other kind of pursuits, but not this kind of inward turning and and kind attention. So radical then and radical now. And the way the, the Sutta tells us to do this is to contemplate the body in the body or body as a body. What, why this is important is it means this direct and felt experience, not concept of the body, not sort of looking at the body, oh, you know, what is, what is it that's down there that's been carrying me around all this time, but really this very immediate intuitive felt sense, this is what it's pointing to. And then it goes through 14 different practices to do with the body to bring mindfulness of the body. <clears throat> and as I and um and it begins with the breath. This is where we start our practice often every sitting certainly every retreat feel the breath, feel the breath in the body. And the breath is particularly one of the aspects of this sutta that the Buddha said could be taken all the way to awakening. There's a whole sutta called the Anapanasati Sutta, mindfulness of in and out breathing that takes breath meditation and guides us all the way to awakening. So the breath in and of itself considered to be enough. And the Buddha even said that all the other three foundations of mindfulness can all be realized just through awareness of breathing. So the contemplation of the body begins with mindfulness of breathing. And I'll just read you a little bit so you get the sense of what the Buddha said about mindfulness of the breath. And how bhikkhus, does a bhikkhu abide contemplating the body as a body? As I said, we can be all bhikkhus or bhikkhunis. Usually the these suttas directed to bhikkhus uh, are, or in the masculine pronoun, I will change it quite often because what I've understood, what I've been told is it was very traditional that you in- addressed um, the most senior of your audience. And unfortunately, in the Buddhist monastic tradition, nuns, even though they've been ordained for a long time, are junior to monks. It's part of a patriarchal culture. We're not going to go into that. But um, <laughs> things are hopefully changing a little bit here in the West. But I will sometimes change the pronoun, just so you know, it's probably not what the Buddha said. But he did give teachings to nuns, and there were often nuns in the audience when these teachings were given, bhikkhunis. And how, bhikkhus, does a bhikkhu abide contemplating the body as a body? Here a bhikkhu, gone to the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty hut, sits down, having folded her legs crosswise, sets her body erect, and set, sets her body erect and established mindfulness in front of her ever mindful she breathes in mindful she breathes out breathing in long she understands I breathe in long or breathing out long she understands I breathe out long breathing in short she understands I breathe in short or breathing out short she understands I breathe out short He trains thus, and this is a shift from understanding to training. There's kind of a a more sense of a development of the practice. I shall breathe in experiencing the whole body. He trains thus, I shall breathe out experiencing the whole body. He trains thus, I shall breathe in tranquilizing the bodily formation. He trains thus, I shall breathe out tranquilizing the bodily formation. Just as a skilled lathe operator or his apprentice, when making a long turn understands, I make a long turn. Or when making a short turn understands, I make a short turn. So too, breathing in long, a bhikkhu understands, I breathe in long. She trains thus, I shall breathe out, tranquilizing the bodily formation. So you could do a whole talk just on that, on the, the difference between understanding and training. But for our practice, the essence is we know the breath in this intimate way. The breath very simply, in a a discrete location, or the breath in the whole body. And particularly the breath as a calming factor. What this speaks to me is that we can use the breath skillfully to actually shift and balance the energy of the body. Most of the time, excuse me, <clears throat> Most of the time, we do just want to have the breath be natural, simple breath. But I think it is also skillful, just as the Buddha points to, to use the breath to actually balance energy. You can use the breath to enliven the body too. If you're sleepy or dull, a larger or a deeper breath. If you're agitated, a more refined, a softer, a slower breath. The breath is a tool that we can use. We can train using the breath. And these instructions, I think, can help us bring interest to the breath. You know, sometimes like, oh, another breath. But if we really get curious, what is this breath? <coughs> is it? And again, not to get over, if this is, seems too busy or analytical, again, these are all just pointers from the sutta. Some will be helpful, some not. But this sort of more directed interest, what's this breath like? Is smooth or short long or deep, rough or harsh. All of these are ways we can get more interested in the breath. And then each of these sections, each of the foundations has what's called the refrain refrain or the insight section, where there's a set of instructions that are repeated for each of the foundations. And in there, where Advised to contemplate each of the foundations, in this case, the body as a body, internally, externally, or both internally and externally. And again, this is interesting for us because all of our instructions pretty much advise you to contemplate internally, right? We mentioned seeing and we certainly talk about hearing, but in the formal meditation, the, the awareness is directed inward your own breath, your own body. But here it says, contemplate externally. And again, there's sort of sometimes some debate about what that means, but I pretty much think it means literally externally, that we can also contemplate the body externally, other people's bodies. And this doesn't mean looking and staring and evaluating, but just bodies have a nature, all bodies share a similar nature. And for the breath, it can kind of open us up. You know, Every retreat, there are some heavy breathers. If you have the sense, I'm just contemplating the breath externally and it's a valid practice, can take away some of the ripples that sometimes that can cause in the meditation hall. And Paul Xida, who I mentioned earlier, he takes this literally. He says, as you deepen in your practice and really get very attuned, All of these practices you do literally externally. So contemplating the body externally in all the ways that that, um, it's mentioned here. And then it talks about contemplating, in this case the body, in its nature of both arising and vanishing. This is the insight section. This is the pointing towards impermanence, to pointing towards the three characteristics and the conditioned nature of experience, that this body comes into being. You know, it starts from a cup uh, an egg and a sperm coming together, and then develops and gets fed and nourished, and at some point will come out of being, out of existence. But even in its trajectory, it's always changing. You know, and our awareness of the body is always arising and passing, right? From when you wake up in the morning, oh right, there it is, body again. Go to sleep, we lose contact a lot with the body. During the day, the sense of the body arising and passing. Again, really important. (laughs) This is a theme throughout the Buddha's teachings on how to practice, is to see their nature, and to deconstruct experience, to see its constituent parts. When we take something as solid, as fixed, as enduring, there's no way in for insight. But just as Guy was talking about this morning, we start to notice the arising and passing, the conditioned nature, the aggregate nature of the body. It's a lot of stuff stuck together, right? And we'll talk about this further on in the Sutta. We start to see that in this experiential way. And just as Guy was saying this morning, it starts to unstick the solidity that we assume when we don't look. And also the sense of self, that there's something in here that's solid and enduring, because we see it's changing nature, constant changing nature. So this is central, is this sense of deconstruction. But then I love that this insight section finishes with the most simple instruction, which is repeated for each of the foundations, that mindfulness that there is a body is established to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. So after going through all of these detailed practices and all of these nuances and suggestions, we get to the extent necessary to know there is a body. And Joseph, when he reread the sutta recently, really realized that's an instruction. And he would often start retreats with, and I think we've mentioned it too, just mindfulness there is a body, that that's all we need to do. And then we can build the practice from there. But the extent necessary, so whenever it seems like a lot, and it's going to seem like a lot, I guarantee you, by the time I get to the end of this, it's it's quite a complex teaching. This is always repeated. Mindfulness to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. So, And then there are these different other practices that the Buddha goes through for us. The next one is the four postures. And we've talked about this, right? Sitting, walking, standing, lying down. It's basically however the body is disposed, we bring mindfulness to it. We talk about the sitting, we certainly give you instruction on the walking. It's why, especially on a long retreat like this, we include the standing. The Buddha says, pay attention here. And it's so helpful. To have that sense of however the body is, whatever I'm doing, can I bring, and it doesn't have to be a rigid, tight, focused mindfulness, but just this open sense of the body as an, as an organism, alive and sensing whatever it's doing. So I lo- I've loved seeing so many of you doing standing meditation in the hall in the morning, and I'm sure you're doing it at other times too. Include that, all of the postures. And then it expands that into this section called Full Awareness. And it's great to know that this is what the Buddha told us to do. The bhikkhu is one who acts in full awareness when going forward and returning. Who acts in full awareness when looking ahead and looking away who acts in full awareness when flexing and extending his limbs, who acts in full awareness when wearing his robes and carrying his outer robe and bowl, who acts in full awareness when eating, drinking, consuming food and tasting, who acts in full awareness when defecating and urinating, who acts in full awareness when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking and keeping silent. Anything not included in that? I mean, he didn't have checking your phone. That's true. But by extension, it's everything, right? We include everything. That's what we keep talking about, this continuity of practice. So important. I can remember what I did my very first retreat in India in 1981 or so. I practiced with S. N. Goenka in India. And it's a very intense practice. I know a lot of you have done it. Um, It's a you think this schedule is tough? They have a really uh, tough schedule, which includes you know, hours and longer periods of sittings. You eventually do an vow hour where you determine not to move, and you're doing this sweeping meditation. But I do not remember getting, they may have said it, but I do not remember getting instructions on practice outside of that. You know, so I'd practice very intensively in the hall, and then when I got outside, the mind would be all over the place, rushing around as you can do, doing all this stuff, taking, doing the washing by hand and meals and everything. And then at the end of the retreat, you know, I was on a retreat with a, another friend who did it, and he started talking about mindfulness in these other areas, and I was like, really? You're meant to do that too? It was like a revelation. I had no, con- 10 days of that retreat, no concept about it that I was meant to be mindful. Now, of course, we realize how important it is. Your work meditation, the in-between times, so rich to bring awareness to, certainly awareness of the body and what it's doing in a, in a very general way, but particularly how you're relating to what you're doing. It's a field for judgments and evaluation. I've joked with some people, you know, so many of us get so obsessed with our work meditation. We want a gold star, right, for doing such a good job. We get very uh, A-type personality about it. I've said... I, you know, my job was one time cleaning this foyer out here, and I, I kept waiting for the note where they said, you've done the best job we've ever seen of cleaning the foyer, and never came, they never noted. But just to notice what the mind does about all these kind of things. And then the sutta goes on. So all of the, you can see it's deepening, starting with the breath, this general sense of body, awareness. And then this next section that... Has often been challenging for people because if I read literally from what it says here, the next section is called foulness, the body parts. And this is where there's this detailed looking at the constituent parts of the body. But this word foulness, sometimes translated loathsomeness of the body, the word is asuba. And I have been told by very experienced pali scholars that suba literally means beautiful so asuba means not beautiful or you know not something to get attached to or lust after but these early translations were done by sort of victorian english um, people and they they weren't often practitioners and there that you can find that tendency in parts of the text because a lot of these practices were taught to monks and nuns to kind of disengage from a sense of identification with the body and particularly to balance uh, lustful tendencies for one's own body or others. So there is a point to why those practices were sometimes um, labeled in that way. Um, but what the, the sutta tells us to do is to review this body as made of these parts. And it starts with the The first, when you do it as a practice, it's it's, um, segmented into these groups, and the first group is kind of the external head, hair, body, hair, nail, skin, teeth, kind of the external, and then it goes deeper into all the organs, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, intestines, mesentery, contents of the stomach, feces, bile, phlegm, pus, sweat, fat, tears, grease, spittle, snot, oil of the joints, and urine. (coughs) 31 things. Later, they added the brain. They figured that was important to have in there. But it's not a complete list. You know, if you're a medical person or even have some slight knowledge of the body, you will look in this and see it's not all there. It doesn't really matter. It's really just seeing this is what the body is made of. And this is how we can view the body. And it goes on to say, as though there was a bag with opening at both ends, within which were different kinds of beans and rice, and you would just say hill beans, red beans, black beans, you know, long grain rice, short grain rice. When you hear that description, it's not one of disgust and loathing. So it's just, this is the nature of the body, because I'd read this Sutta so many times, heard it talked about, I actually decided to do this practice. And when I did this, i didn't couldn't find many teachings on it, certainly no teachers to talk about. So I did it on retreat over at the forest refuge, just reading the text and the Vaudimaga, the um other commentary on um, these teachings that has a lot on the um on this particular practice. Very much flavored by the foulness kind of essence. So, you know, that's what I was reading as I was trying to practice. Luckily, I also discovered over there um, a catalog from the exhibition called Body Worlds. Have you heard of that? It's this guy, a German doctor, I forget his name now, who discovered a technique where he could preserve bodies through plastinization. Plastination plastic plus doing something with the body um, so they were actually able to be put in certain poses and even, and and open dissected so all the different aspects of the body the blood circulation and the nervous system and the organs could be revealed real human bodies and so he, there there was actually an exhibition and someone had left this book in the library And it had, you know, these bodies opened up. So I, because I didn't, what does a spleen look like? I didn't have any idea. All these, you know, even the skeleton to really get a sense of the makeup of the bone. So that became my Bible. Um, I really appreciated having it. And actually, sometimes, I got really interested in these practices and I did it for some time. And instead of being loathsome, what I found was it was fascinating and It didn't bring any sense of disgust but actually awe and wonder and then impartiality because I really got the sense, you know, my kidney, your kidney, kidney. Kidneys just do its thing and I don't have anything to do with it, right? I don't tell the kidneys what to do or the gallbladder or the spleen, they're just doing its thing and this kind of more universal nature of the body. So, I, I got very interested in this practice, and sometime around that time, we had a wedding anniversary, and Guy said, what do you want to do for your wedding anniversary? And I said, uh, this exhibition, Body Worlds, was going around, and it wasn't coming to San Francisco, it was in L.A. I said, I want to go to L.A. and see Body World. So, for our anniversary, we drove down, <laughs> stayed in a hotel, and spent a day looking at dead bodies. That's the <laughs> Buddhist idea of a wedding anniversary. is <laughs> Look at go and look at dead bodies. But it was interesting when I went in. It was like they're all my old friends because I'd studied them so much. The, you know, in all their, you know, and just to see that's the body. It's the body. <laughs> And it's, and now, luckily, Bob Stahl, one of our teachers, he loves this practice and he teaches it regularly. So if you're interested, I encourage you to look up Bob and his work. I've taught a whole retreat with him on these practices. And it's very powerful to just take this section and go into it in, in great detail. Again, deconstructing the body, pointing to impartiality. Where is the self in that? In the liver, in the gallbladder, in the spleen. I have to keep going. Then again, we get to the next section, the elemental nature of the body, the four great elements, earth, air, fire, and water. That in the time of the Buddha, this was considered what the body was made up of. You know, instead of, there was the sort of the physical manifestation, but kind of on an energetic level, earth, air, fire, and water, where the earth element is all the solidity and hardness and pressure and heaviness. And the water is the fluidity and the softness and the cohesion and the fire is all the heat or coolness or warmth or coldness. And air is vibration or the breath um, motion. This, again, is really helpful for us, especially if we're having strong sensations in the body. Instead of, you know, oh, my knee is on uh, is aching. Oh, it's the fire element in this burning. Or if there's some s- strong sense of hardness, heaviness in the body, to feel that, really on an elemental way, um, instead of making a story about it. You know, because even saying... Whatever our story is about it, that's a construct. Even labeling knee is a construct. Even fear, labeling an emotion, is somewhat of a construct. What we're actually experiencing is varying degrees of pressure and tingling and vibration and contraction and expansion and warmth and coolness. Again, it helps us loosen a little bit the stickiness, loosen a little the um, agitation, the identification around. So the elemental way of practicing with the body can be really helpful. The last set of instructions, again deepening our tuning to the body and its nature, are the charnel ground contemplations, where there are nine different practices of focusing very directly on the fact that this body will die. And again, in Asia, it's much more common to see dead bodies. Was for us not so many years ago. The body would be laid out in the living room after death. Now it's all like, get rid as soon as possible, You know, keep it all clean and nice. In monasteries in Asia, you can practice with dead bodies. Sometimes go to see autopsies. Uh, With Bob Stahl, we went down, another thing we did was go to um, A a school down in Santa Cruz where they were doing autopsies as part of a medical training, and and we were able to go see uh, a dead body and the autopsy that was going on, Uh, that wasn't happening. We could just be with a dead body. Now in our culture, we trivialize death. Young people can grow up and see tens of thousands of deaths, but they're cartoonish, they're not given any value. It's like just you know any movie? All of this this violence. Here we're really invited into this body too is impermanent, and we're invited to visualize the the death and decay of this body. And we don't have to have a dead body to do this. the The, the invitation is in uh, contemplate um, as though one were to see a corpse in these various stages of decay. And then the reflection is this body is of the same nature. This body will go through the same experience. And again, not that you have to do this here. It's a very deep and powerful set of practices. Some teachers have taken it up. Eugene Cash, I know, is one who likes to teach called Maranasati, mindfulness of death, day long classes in retreats. But it's very central to this practice. It's here in the sutta. In many monasteries in Asia, monks and nuns will every day chant what's called the five sub- subjects for frequent recollection, where we'll ch- we'll chant, you know, I'm subject to death. I'm subject to aging. I'm, I'm subject to illness. I, I, I will go separated from everything that's beloved, and I am the heir to my karma. These are the subjects for frequent recollection. And Larry Rosenberg, this founding teacher at um, Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, wrote a great book on these recollections called Living With Dying, where he really goes into all of these as practices, really helpful for us. Because it's the ultimate delusion, is it that this won't happen to us? Or that when we get sick, or notice the signs of aging, that we've done something wrong. And this society, again, conditions this belief. You know, all of the anti-aging creams and potions and lotions and supplements and, and surgery that, that are, are foisted out there in the marketplace. Somehow I came up upon this website. You know, it's amazing what's out there. It's called the Immortality Institute. And their <laughs> motto is conquering the blight of involuntary death. <laughs> it's like, not going to happen. So we invite this contemplation. We invite actually being present. I've, you know, why people do hospice work or are willing to be with friends. I had a dear friend who was getting old, you know, she's losing her sight to macular degeneration, and she's died now. But before she died, she told me the story of going in to get a checkup and seeing the nurse and just starting to list so the nurse could, you know, on the clipboard, take note of everything that was wrong. And she said as she got to about the 15th thing, she started to just laugh of the body going through this aging process. And I, my mother has died. but my, my father's still alive. He's 88 and he still lives in Australia. I call him you know, every week or so. And this is his experience. All of his friends, family members, have either died or are dying. And every conversation at some point we get to, do you remember the halls? Or the, the Browns, or the Smiths, you know, because we lived, I grew up and he lived in the same house for 60 years, of, and so all of these connections. And he'd say, well Mrs. Smith, she just went into hospital, or Mr. Smith, he died, or so-and-so, and he's got all these euphemisms, so and so has fallen off his perch, or <laughs> past his use-by date is one that he'll use, because this is what happens, right? He uses that a little. To, I keep saying, Dad, how is that for you? And he goes, oh, it's just the way things are. And it's kind of equanimity, but also a lot of sadness and, and kind of despondency about this. But this is the truth. And there's nothing more free or powerful than someone who's fully awake to this truth, who just knows that this is the way it is and isn't suffering from that illusion. So depths. Of seeing an insight in these teachings, so this is the that was the last of the um, the buddha the body practices. But the refrain is always there: we practice knowing the body as a body, this direct and felt sense. We use the body as a place to ground and establish the attention to know all of the other foundations, the life of the emotions. We know through the body to see the three characteristics, to see as solid as it seems, it's changing, it's insubstantial, it's, it's impermanent. And it's just this conglomeration of stuff that is together for a while and it will come apart. The more and more clearly we see that, the freer and freer we will be. And as the Buddha said, all we need to awaken is found in this fathom-long body. I wanna close with another sutta from the Samyutta Nikaya on the value of mindfulness of the body. Little bit of sort of humor from the suttas. It's called the beauty queen. You could substitute Beyonce or whoever uh, catches your fancy when they mention the beauty queen. The blessed one said, Suppose, O monks, that a large crowd, crowd of people comes thronging together saying, the beauty queen, the beauty queen. And suppose that the beauty queen is highly accomplished in singing and dancing so that an even greater crowd comes thronging saying, the beauty queen is singing, the beauty queen is dancing. Imagine a festival, you know, everyone's in the mosh pit kind of, you know, it's all happening. And then a man comes along desiring life and shrinking from death desiring pleasure and a boring pain they say to him now look here mister you must take this bowl filled to the brim with oil and carry it on your head in between the great crowd and the beauty queen and a man with a raised sword will follow right behind you and wherever you spill even a drop of oil right there he will cut off your head. Now, what do you think, monks? Will that man, not paying attention to the bowl of oil, let himself get distracted by outside? No, Lord, they say. I have given you this parable to convey a meaning. The meaning is this The bowl filled to the brim with oil stands for mindfulness immersed in the body. Thus should you train yourself. We will develop mindfulness immersed in the body. We will pursue it, hand it the reins, and take it as a basis give it a grounding, steady it, consolidate it, and undertake it well. That is how you should train yourself, with mindfulness immersed in the body. So let the body just sit however it is disposed with mindfulness immersed in your current experience. Take whatever was helpful from that. And the main thing is the simplicity of the practice. Mindfulness, there is a body. It's all you need to begin and end this practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.